from the fabulous and famous Fitzpatrick's Castle Hotel in Dublin, Ireland. You're listening to the award-winning What's the Story podcast. Now, here's your hosts, Danny Murray and Graham Merrow Merrigan. Hello and welcome along to chapter 53 of What's the Story podcast. My name is Danny Murray. Graham Merrow Merrigan is facing me, as always. How are you today, Danny? I'm brilliant. Well, no, I'm a bit delicate, if I'm being honest. Yeah, me too. It's because I'm in Vegas, you see. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this sounds good for all the mileage that's in between us. Yeah, you yeah, sound yeah. so close to me. I'm so clear. I'm, yeah. not, I'm face, yeah, and you're, facing you? You're facing me. It's beautiful. <laughs> so I'm in Las Vegas, and uh, <laughs> last night was UFC 200. <laughs> Um, but I'm not going to give any spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't want to talk about it anyway. Yeah, no, we're not going to talk about it. I mean, <laughs> we talked about it last week with Ian, so, you know, whatevs. It's old news now. Yeah. <laughs> we swear we're not recording this two weeks in advance. <laughs> no, we didn't record. We never record weeks never, in advance. Never, we're totally up to date. Oh, man, I'm so happy Britain are still in the EU. Brrrr. <laughs> 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 Boris Johnson, my God. Can you imagine Boris Johnson as Peter? Did you ever see that video of him playing tag rugby with kids and he yeah. absolutely bulldozed some little Chinese kid? And the, Yeah, but you ever see him in the wheelchair rugby? No. He bulldozes <laughs> lads playing wheelchair rugby as well. He's nuts. I love he's, Boris Johnson he, yeah, for all the wrong reasons. You laugh like, at him. Yeah, yeah laugh oh, at I'm him. not laughing at him. How is he? He's not even an MP, is he? Yeah, he is, yeah. You sure? Yeah. Because he was just the mayor of London. Did he not get in the last election? Did he not run for MP because he gave up the whole mayor thing? Possibly, now, possibly. No, I. I know your man Farage isn't an MP. No, because he didn't get elected in the last election, and he's complaining that he's not going to some meeting um, for elected committee members. It's yeah, like, yeah. Given out, it's like no, Nigel, you're not an elected member. Anybody, anybody who supports somebody like Nigel Farage needs to be put in a rocket and flown to the sun. Yeah, big time. I just think that's. You know. But he was seen to have lied already, saying that 350 yeah. million uh, will, <laughs> will going be going to the NHS. And, and then, then the second results were called out, he was like, <laughs> no, about that. Was that. A, that was a mistake, that was a mistake. I watched the video. But and she's like, hold on, but you run, you ran your campaign yeah. based on this. People are it's crazy. What, 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 like, is, it, is it as dramatic as people are talking about? Or what? It's, it's, a, I don't, it's a game changer, but I don't know. I, like, I honestly don't. Like, I'm not a political expert. We have borders now going up to six counties. Well, they're saying that's a possibility. But I don't know. Like, I, I guess nobody will know. It's uncharted territory, so to speak. Mm. Because the world has changed so much since see, before the I, EU. So. I was really surprised to see Northern Ireland, uh, the people of the six counties, voted to remain in the EU. I don't know. All Majority, look, like 63%. I don't know. All I know is that... That's not a very loyalist um, back <coughs> voting... Background, no, is it? No, it's not. But look at the amount of money the EU throws at the north. All I know for definite crime is that we, Ireland, should see an increase in foreign direct investment and tourism. And if there are tourists listening to this and they're thinking of somewhere to stay, <laughs> why don't you pop up to Fitzpatrick's Castle in Cliney, where they love the European Union and they love everything because they're just such happy people up here. They're great people, great food. Unbelievable. It's a great spot and you need to check it out and you need to come up. I mean, look, how often do you get to stay in a castle? Well, me and Grant get to be here all the time because we're residents now. And, and I sat here recently as well, anyway. You did, yeah. Congratulations, Mikey and Ashling. Um, great place altogether. So pop up to Fitzpatrick Castle Hotel. Check out the food. Don't forget there's a bottomless barbecue all summer. Every Friday, just give them a call. 
do get spot 27 euro unlimited food unlimited prosecco love it mm, great segue thanks yeah i was working on that you just didn't want to talk about brexit anymore no i didn't because we're not politics Fitzpatrickcastle.com, Facebook.com, forward slash Fitzpatrickcastle, Ireland, I think. I can't know what Facebook is. Just, just You'll just, find it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Look. Great spot. Love it. What are we doing today, Dan? Who are we, we talking to today? We are talking to um, a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant sports writer. And writer in general. Um, you would have seen his work featured in such places as the Irish Times. Mm-hmm. Every Thursday. Every Thursday. And uh, recently you would have seen him popping up in particular relation to one topic. And that's what we're going to be talking about because he's quite an expert on it. Just over one month ago, the world lost the greatest of all time, Muhammad Ali. And we've been saying for a couple of weeks that we wanted to put together a kind of fitting tribute or a kind of a What's the Story special on the greatest of all time, Muhammad Ali. So we figured Dave Hannigan would be the man who's perfect for the job because he has a book coming up that documents the madness surrounding Ali's last ever boxing match. And he had a book about Crow Park, his friend Crow Park. the Irish connection there. And we're all about stories to do with Irish people and things that happen in Ireland and Dublin in particular, especially around the Borough. And while we don't know if Ali, well, I would imagine he would have ventured through the Borough, probably would have stopped off at Palm Beach. Yeah. Maybe even Cambo, who knows? You know what I mean? Probably said a night in there. Probably, yeah, probably popped up for Fitzpatrick's. Um, but we decided that Dave would be a man who would be able to tell us some great stories and give us um, insight into Muhammad Ali. And uh, that's what we're going to be talking about. Lovely. So it's uh, it's kind of mad. Like, it's it's just over a month since, since Ali passed away. Like, and yeah, look, the sun is still rising and the moon is still there. And, you know, the tide still goes in and out and all that crack. Like, but... It is kind of weird to think just how much that man achieved, like, and mm. how big an influence he had on things. I suppose it's only when you actually properly look at not just his boxing career, but everything else that he done, that you realise just how big an influence on the world that man was. Like, I loved, I loved the way he just stood by his principles at all times, like the not going to Vietnam and being banned from boxing for three years after that, and yeah. you know, the ban of three years. I think they were saying that it was going to be longer, so he mm. he knew that. But he still stuck by his principles whilst not probably being able to earn during yeah, that time. Yeah. A country that was going to stop him from earning from his bread and butter. Like, do you know what I mean? Yeah. I love that. I love that. So I think we might touch on it with Dave, uh, Dave but yeah. I think it's it's admirable um, that a sports star of, of his stature did stand by such of those principles. Absolutely. Because I don't think you'd get that... Uh, you know, you don't get that much nowadays with with sports stars. I don't think they they don't have a responsibility, but to do that, they're just sports stars at the end of the day. But I I think it'd be admirable sometimes if the odd sports star comes out and has their opinion about something. Yeah, I think I, I see where James McLean, I suppose. Yeah, he's a good example of it. Um, yeah, I I think when people do come out, you get the feeling it's being ran through a PR company or it's being a script that they've been handed Nike. and told, learned that and. There is certainly an element of that, and I think um, I don't think you quite get people anymore who have a platform to just speak their mind and speak it. Mm. I think there's too much control. I think there's too much sort of. It would be very rare, basically, that somebody who has the platform and the sway 
we'll come out and say something grandiose like mm. you know what I mean um, I'm trying to think of examples off the top of my head as well as the James McLean tweet after the Brexit thing um, maybe around the marriage referendum maybe around then you would have seen people but yeah, but that was the cool thing to, to yeah. support you know what yeah. I mean but um, <laughs> yeah look I don't know um, maybe we'll talk about that with Dave yeah I guess we'll uh, we'll move around because you you and I could ramble about it for, for as long but I mean th- this guy knows it and lives it and he's he's a wealth of knowledge on Muhammad Ali so without any further ado I love when you wave your hands yeah, yeah I, I you nearly get jazz hands I get handsy I get handsy um, <laughs> look we're keeping the man waiting <laughs> let's speak to the one and only the brilliant Dave Hannigan so we're joined now by um, author and writer whose book Drama in the Bahamas Muhammad Ali's Last Fight is coming out in August Dave Hannigan Dave thanks very much for your time thanks very much for joining us today thanks a lot guys um, I suppose firstly t- tell us a little bit about the book because it's, it's kind of focusing uh, largely on Ali's last fight yeah, it's it's basically fight. Or it, it's a fight that you know is long forgotten, and I suppose for good reason too. Is long forgotten. It was an embarrassing, sort of needless, um, almost postscript to Ali's career. Really, uh, fourteen months after he was embarrassed by Larry Holmes, he got into the ring once more to fight Trevor Burbeck in Nassau and the Bahamas because nobody, nobody in America really wanted to touch the fight. Nobody really wanted to see Ali back in the ring at all. So my, you know, when I when I was revisiting it, basically, my 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 motivation was to tell the story of this kind of long forgotten chapter. I mean, there's, there's been too many Ali books. There's there's nothing about Ali we really don't know. Any you know at this point, but I, I felt that this was an underreported and um, neglected part of the story, and and I just wanted to delve into it and see what was there. And and, and you know, I, I took, once I got there, I thought you know there's a lot of very interesting stuff. It's very sad very poignant kind of tale of a man hanging on too long and, and getting embarrassed one more time, kind of an image far removed from the alley that we, we kind of, you know, like to think about most of the time. You said there that it had to be in Bahamas because nobody would touch the fight. It was that it wouldn't get sanctioned or just people just weren't interested or? Well, the, the book actually, he starts with Ali um, giving up his license slash losing his license to fight in Las Vegas. They didn't want to touch him anymore. Um, this is December 1980. By that point, he actually couldn't fight in New York because he couldn't get sanctioned there either for health reasons. And he goes around the place. He goes to Hawaii and gets rejected. He's he's basically looking for somewhere to sanction a fight, his next fight. And he's struggling. South Carolina is the only place in America that would actually allow him to fight. But then, due to a connection that somebody close to him had, they move it to the Bahamas. But really, nobody in America wanted to sanction it. No television network, none of the major television networks in America wanted to show the fight um, because there was actually genuine worry that Ali would end up being badly hurt in the ring. That, that, that's frightening, really, like, when you contrast that to, to his earlier career, especially in the the, the hype and and the, the show that just followed him around. But so the fight went to the Bahamas, um, and even when it got there, even though they were willing to sanction it or whatever, it still was kind of a long, long, long away from anything else or a professional fight that you'd expect to sound like. Oh, I mean, it really was. This was a minor league kind of affair. Uh, the Bahamas was... Was, had only recently gained its independence uh, from Great Britain 
And I think it was a very corrupt, a lot of political corruption. There was a lot of drug money swirling around the Bahamas at that point. So there was a lot of kind of cash there. And, you know, many people in power actually thought it would be a good idea, would reflect well on the islands or on the island of of Nassau in particular to get Muhammad Ali to fight there. But they didn't have the facilities. Um, You know, you have the undercard fighters, just to give you one story, the undercard fighters, 14 of them were sharing a locker room. Uh, Jesus. um, Yeah, 14 of them were sharing a locker room. Trevor Burbeck and uh, Tommy Hearns. Tommy Hearns was fighting on the undercard. They were both uh, togging out in RVs, you know, these camper vans (laughs) that the promoters had to borrow from tourists and uh, which had port-a-loos kind of or port-a-potties attached to them. Uh, It was real amateur hour. Um, You know, just before the fight starts, or shortly before the undercard starts, they realize they have no gloves, which is very reminiscent of Ali in Crow Park in 1972. The gloves had to be flown in at the last minute from Miami. And then even just when everything is in place, uh, the, the fight the fight promoter, a guy called Shelley Siegel, uh, he basically uh, he he basically re- remembers that there's no or realizes that there's no ring or there's no bell. There's no bell for the fight. Jesus. And they go and get a, get a bell from a cow in a neighboring field, oh take God, it off bell. the uh, take it off the cow, and that's the the cow bell is what tolls the ten final rounds of Ali's career. Ali's career, which really is the most incredible metaphor for <laughs> how pathetic and sad and you know sort of out of place and out of kilter this final fight was. With with all with all this the missing stuff like a, a, a bell a, a bell even, um, Dave. What 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 type of purses are you talking here for the for the two main the two lads in the main event? Well, you're talking about incredible exaggeration. Ali, when he starts promoting the fight, and he's still brilliant at promoting. He's still, you know, he gives a couple of press conferences, even though his speech is notice, noticeably slower than what it was in his pomp. Um, you know, he's still very very much the salesman, but he claims to be getting three million uh, three million dollars, but. What comes across is he gets, if he got a third of that, he was very lucky. He probably got much less than a million. And he, he, you know, what comes across is he didn't care. He didn't care about the money because at several points, the fight looks like it's going to be cancelled because uh, the money, there's no money there. The fighters aren't being paid. Burbeck hasn't received any of the money that he's supposed to receive. I think Burbeck ends up with 300 grand in the end. But the fight only goes ahead at the last minute because one of the TV companies produces a check, a guaranteed check, and gives it to Burbeck on the day of the fight. At lunchtime (laughs) on the day of the fight, Burbeck is still contemplating not fighting because he hasn't received any guarantees. So it's very shady. Um, There's a character... Uh, from the a character from the Midwest who's connected to the mob uh, called Victor Seya, a very dodgy businessman who at one point is walking around the hotel with a briefcase full of cash, handing it out <laughs> to fighters and their managers, trying to persuade them not to leave town before the fight before the fight night. That's crazy. You're saying there that um, it wasn't about the money uh, for Ali. So what was it about them? Why did he need this fight, or why did he want this fight? Because I think he suffered from every boxer's affliction of of not realizing when time was up. You know, he didn't really 
accept that the Ali who was embarrassed by Larry Holmes in Vegas in October 1980, that that was the real him. And he, he thought that he could just go back to the well once more and he would find he would find himself in better fettle and in better condition and able to able to deliver. So I think he was definitely driven by that. He also was driven by the fact that, I mean, he had to have the limelight. The limelight, you know, it was the oxygen of publicity. He needed that to keep going. And even, you know, he talks himself of how hard it was to train until he got to the, the Bahamas and some of the writers who had chronicled his career started to arrive in town. And then that got him going. The juices were flowing then. He knew it was an event. He knew, you know, some international journalists had arrived. This was, you know, this was the stuff that he loved about the whole, you know, he loved the attention. He loved being the center of attention. And I think he was very, very reluctant to give that up. To admit his, you know, for him to admit his career is over would would have meant giving up that say, you know, that spotlight that he that he thrived on. So he he ultimately goes on to to lose the fight. Um, uh, as you said, the, the cowbell toll, so to speak, um, the the final moments of his career, the decision. Then uh, I can only imagine kind of what those around him would have been saying in the locker room after the fight and trying to, to, to I don't know, were they trying to rally around him? Is like, obviously, because you, you said yourself before, writing about Ali is like going down a rabbit hole. So when it came to, to this moment in his career, how or, or what kind of information did you come across, like those final few moments? Was he accepting of it? Or were people trying to G him up and say, it's okay, champ, you can go again, that kind of thing? Or was it just this shadow of a man sort of finally accepting I can't do it anymore. It, it was actually it was actually a bit of both, lads, really. It was he he arrives in the locker room, he got beaten up by Trevor Burbeck, and Trevor Burbeck was no great fighter at that point in his career. And Trevor Burbeck, you know, you can see the fight in YouTube and, and some people think, Oh, he wasn't that bad. I, I think he was disgraceful and I think the fight should have been stopped maybe at, at twice at least. At one point Burbeck just looks to the ref as if to say, please, you know, stop this. I don't want to beat up one of my heroes. But when Ali gets to the locker room, Ali is very, very um, honest with himself. You know, Father Time finally caught up with me. Uh, he realizes now that he had, you know, he had nothing left. As he says, when, when in one of the first close clinches that, that himself and Burbeck had, he said, you know, I realized when I, when I was ho- holding on to him in the corner, how hard his body was and how soft my body was. And that kind of very early on in the fight made him realize, you know, that this is not, you know, he cannot compete anymore with these younger, fitter, uh, faster fighters. And he's now, you know, touching 40 and and really a, a, a shadow of his former self. So in the locker room, which is this incredibly cramped, dingy locker room in a baseball stadium in Nassau, community baseball field, basically, he... He realizes, and he's very honest with the journalist, Father Time finally caught up with me. Um, he's quite sober in his assessment. But around him, some of his entourage, his wife, his then wife, Veronica, is trying to persuade him that he won the fight. John Travolta, Jeez. who was a member of his entourage that week. I mean, this was John you know Travolta. December 1981. John Travolta would have been a major figure in, in pop culture. Yeah. I mean, he would have been one of the biggest movie stars in the world, I suppose. John Travolta is trying to persuade him, you know, that he won the fight. But everybody else, um, Angelo Dundee is privately confiding to journalists 
um, and after the fight, you know, I was very worried that the, the referees might sentimentally give Ali the decision and, and you know, persuade him to keep fighting. And, and Dundee was relieved that, uh, that the referees had given Burbeck the decision that he deserved and, and, you know, that this would hopefully be it for Ali. So there's a bit of both. He realises it's over. Dundee realises it's over. But some, you know, his then wife, Veronica, John Travolta, these people are trying to persuade him that he actually won the fight, which is a complete and utter lie. It's, it's bananas, yeah. Dave, where, where, when, when, you said, when you said you were going to write a book on this subject, where, where were you going to start with the research and where did the research take you? Well, I, I think that what, what, what prompted me to write the book in the first place was, um, was I was rereading there, Hugh McIlvenny, the great, the great Scottish journalist, Hugh McIlvenny, um, his anthology of writing about boxing, which is one of the most, one of the greatest books of sports writing, I think, you know, ever, ever published. And I, he, he wrote two classic pieces on this fight for the Observer. And I was reading that and, you know, you just read, the, I was reading the circumstances of it and I said, there's something in this, you know, I'd like to read more about this. And then I just, you know, literally started Googling around and Lexus Nexusing and, and trying to find old art articles from that time. And then, and then you discover, you know, that, that kind of took me on a road. Um, YouTube is a wonderful resource these days. Um, and I was, there was a lot of, of stuff from the Bahamas on YouTube, you know, unfortunately, I couldn't get to talk to Ali, uh, but I talked to people who were around at that time, who were present that week, and there was a wealth of material. A lot of the people involved have written books. There was a lawsuit came out of the television uh, production of the fight. So, you know, the, the material, the, there's a lot of stuff in a lot of different places. Um, you know, my the last couple of books that I've written have, have been about older events, and much more difficult to source material. Whereas this one, I, there were still people alive who were there, and as I said, there was a, a lot of a lot written at the time. And people have written memoirs since about it, about their lives, who were involved in the fight. So there was a lot of stuff. Um, and again, when you when you research Ali, the problem is is you know you set off at night to research one aspect of the story, and you end up you know for instance. I, I didn't know anything about the Bahamas and its political culture. And now suddenly I'm reading books about the Bahamas being a way station for drug money in the late <laughs> 70s and early 1980s. Uh, all of the drug money coming out of the Caribbean going into the U.S. came. And a lot of the drugs coming out of the Caribbean into the U.S. came through the Bahamas. So they're, you know, and a couple of the characters from that were involved in the Ali promotion. So you have to kind of, you know, you don't really know where you're going to go when you're researching an Ali story. But you go to some strange places. Yeah, it definitely sounds like um, one, one of the stranger kind of moments. All right. And the book is out in August, Dave. Is that right? Yeah, the book is called Drama in the Bahamas. Uh, some people call it Trauma in the Bahamas because it was such a disastrous promotion. Drama in the Bahamas, Muhammad Ali's last fight, and it's available in, in August, from August the 2nd. Brilliant, brilliant. We'll have to keep our eye out for that one because, it, it again, as you said, it's when you talk about the career of Ali, you never hear about that bit, and it just sounds like such a kind of bizarre and brilliant for almost all the wrong reasons kind of tale that it sounds too interesting to miss out. Um, but if we can kind of step back now and and look at Ali's career then, and I suppose we'll, we'll bring an Irish connection into it, and we'll talk about another kind of I don't know if it's a strange moment, but certainly one of the more interesting ones. And, and it, was, it seems like a fun story about how it all came together. But the night Ali fought in Crow Park, you've obviously wrote about this and, and know a lot more about it than we do. But 
the man who even put that together, um, but see, his name's out there, escaped me there now, but how much can you tell us about that? Like, that, that just sounds like it was crazy how it came to be. Yeah, that, that is, uh, you know, Buddy Sugar was this... Um, Thank you, yeah, that was it. Yeah, this, this character from Kilhartland in Kerry, he was a circus strongman. It was uh, in the fifties. He was a circus strongman. He would tour, you know, the towns and the villages of Ireland. Um, I think it was with Duffy's Circus, and would do things like drag a car around with, you know, around the the big top and with his teeth. Um, I think he once pulled a double decker across O'Connell Bridge in a feat of strength. And then he ends up in London, working as a working as a publican in London, um, at a bar in, in Shepherd's Bush. And and Butty uh, hires that one of Ali's, um, you know, one of Ali's closest promo, you know, promoters, a person who's in Ali's inner inner sanctum called Harold Conrad is going to be in London. And uh, Butty goes to meet him. And this is like April 1972. And Butty uh, arrives at the hotel where he's staying. And or actually, he invites Harold Conrad to come over to his pub. Conrad is curious because this, this Irish guy sounds a little bit crazy. And they go around to this pub and Butty Sugru says, I want to bring Muhammad Ali to fight in Dublin. And Harold Conrad, who got this story in every town that he ever visited, you know, everybody knew he was close to Ali. Yeah. And everybody who thought they could make a few bob out of an Ali fight would would meet Harold Conrad and off ask him could they bring Ali to his town, but he he basically goes to the bank with Buddy that day and gets three hundred thousand pounds sterling in nineteen seventy two now, which is a lot. That's a lot of money, and uh, Buddy gets the money guaranteed, and three months later, you know, it's completely improbable that you know that think about how big the world was in nineteen seventy two. It's not like today, you know, globalized, shrunken kind of planet that we live in. Everybody's in connection everybody's in, in you know connected in some way. This was April nineteen seventy two. And to give you an idea, Butty comes to Dublin to announce it and he's laughed at. The journalists, the sports journalists <laughs> laugh at the very notion wow. that this circus strongman turned London publican could possibly bring Muhammad Ali to fight in Crow Park. Yes. In July, July of July 19, 1972, Muhammad Ali is climbing to the ropes in a ring in the middle of Crow Park, and it's Buddy Sugru's. You know, this is Buddy Sugru's <laughs> footnote in history, and and you know, this is not Ali. This is you know the Ali that I write about in 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 Dram and the Bam is is Ali at the very end, way past his sell by date. Nowhere, you know, did not belong anywhere near a boxing ring. But the yeah. alley who's in Crow Park, this is alley before the Trill in Manila. This is alley before the Rumble in the Jungle. This is an alley, you know, if not quite in his pomp, this is an alley whose some of his biggest fights, uh, some of his most epic moments are still ahead of him. So it's not a washed out alley that they got to Dublin in 1972. This was still very much a man, you know, near the peak of his powers. He, he was on the, like, I suppose you could say that the fight in Crow Park was, was it on, on the road back to retaining the, the heavyweight title at one stage. Like, so he definitely had a bit of fight left in him. Oh, absolutely. And he, it was basically that he needed Frazier. Frazier didn't want, to, didn't want to rematch. Frazier had the title and he didn't want to rematch. And Ali had to keep fighting because he needed money. So he would he would fight, you know, anywhere that the money was, was put up. Um, you know, so he was, it wasn't quite a bum of the month tour that he was on, but he was fighting quite regularly in different places just to keep, you know, to keep the money coming in because he had an extravagant lifestyle and he had a huge entourage to support. So he had to keep fighting. So Dublin yeah. crops up kind of as, as part of that time in his life where he's trying to keep his, you know, keep fit, 
financially fit and physically fit as he waits for another shot, uh, another shot at, at regaining the title. With, with all that said, with Ali kind of in his prime and he comes to Dublin, how come it wasn't uh, a financial success? The Crow Park. It's a very strange um, story in that respect because you know the the problem was there's a couple of problems i dublin really if you look at it has a long history um certainly up to recent times of not supporting professional boxing quite you know quite as it should it has a reputation as a sports mad town but if you look at boxing promotions in, in dublin they don't tend to go as well as as they're supposed to or as or, as that we would envisage you know, such a sports mad town supporting boxing. So there's that. But there's also this. Ali was so out on this. He was out in the streets so much that week that there's a theory that many people felt we've seen him. We've seen Ali. I saw him walking down O'Connell Street. I saw him walking around the, the hotel in Kiltiernan. He was staying in Oppenheimer's Hotel in Kiltiernan, as it was called at the time. At that people, he was so available that people didn't feel any need to go and pay in to watch him fight. And then the other aspect of that is those who did want to pay in to watch him fight just came in for free. Just before the fight started, uh, just as an American, one of the Americans involved described it to me very poetically. He was standing at ringside, and as I think it was as the uh, national anthem, the Dubliners were playing the national anthem, and as that was being played, he said it was like the signal, and that was like the signal for people to come in. And suddenly, thousands swarmed in for free down through the Hill 16 side of the stadium, and <laughs> there was one lone cop. One lone Garda manning the Hill 16 area who suddenly was faced with thousands of Dubliners who decided, we'd like to see Ali fight, we don't want to pay to get in there. So there was, there was a few thousand came in for free. And then, you know, I, I suppose that, that adds as well to it that people weren't willing to pay the prices to, to get to watch him. So, so Buddy would have probably lost a lot on it, but I suppose he, he would have ed out on there for the rest of the time, wouldn't he, being the man who brought him yeah, to Dublin? I mean, like? Exactly, Buddy. Buddy. The, the, the terrible thing about Buddy is, is he was, you know, ridiculed for this. But when you look back on it, you go, "What an extraordinary achievement to yeah, bring, absolutely, you know, to bring Muhammad Ali to Dublin." In, and you know, to give you an idea of what Dublin was like in 1972, one of the members of Ali's entourage, Rock Brenner, uh, had been to Trinity College. He was a recent graduate of Trinity College, Yul Brenner's son. And Rock Brenner told me when I spoke about this that, you know. Just before they came, he remembered reading a story about a woman off Grafton Street who still kept a cow for milk. Right? So, so think about that. There was, <laughs> think that that's a very different country in 1972, and you know Ireland really was it was a you know this is not technological capital of the world, Ireland. You know, startup nation with computer companies left and right. This is a very agricultural, almost pre-industrial Ireland. And, and Buddy Sugru managed to get the biggest athlete of the 20th century near enough to his prime fighting in Dublin, guaranteeing Ireland a footnote on Ali's resume forever. And just in terms of the finances, you know, Buddy took a bath on this. And the guy, the guy in the bank in London, the Williams and Glynn Bank was the name of the financial institution. The manager who guaranteed Buddy's money apparently died of a heart attack. <laughs> Jesus. In, in an unfortunate incident that was supposedly related to the fight uh, but Buddy himself and I love this this story because it, it demonstrates you know the kind of man he was Buddy was staying in a flat 
in Sean McDermott Street for the week. And a lot of people who were owed money called to that flat and were paid the money out of a plastic bag in, full of cash. <laughs> so Buddy made sure almost everybody who, needed, who was to be paid got paid out of this bag full of cash that he kept in the flat in Sean McDermott Street. It's amazing. Like it's it's actually an amazing story, and it's and again like that. People probably know that Ali fought in Crow Park, but the story surrounding that is kind of almost the best part of it because the, the, the whatever about the fight, but sometimes it's the story around the fight that's even better, and maybe that's reflective of a lot of Ali's career in the sense that everywhere he went or every nearly every fight he had, there was a story from all the rivalry, Sonny Liston all the way through. There always seemed to be a story that followed him. Um, obviously, given the amount you've researched and the amount you've wrote about Ali, Dave, um, what kind of stories are your favourite or what are the ones that when you're ready, you just kind of have to sit back for a minute and go, did that actually happen? Like, <laughs> Well, I, I think, you know, that there's, a, there's a story about the Crow Park fight of Ali and his driver and one of his friends from England, an Irish guy in England called Paddy Monaghan, driving around Dublin in the early hours of a, of a weekday morning. And they take Ali on a tour of Dublin and they, they stop outside the GPO. So Paddy Monaghan, this is kind of pre-dawn Dublin and Paddy, Paddy Monaghan tells him the story of the GPO and the rising and stuff like that. And then Ali goes to uh, Crow Park itself where they meet a street sweeper who's cleaning the streets uh, in early morning. Dublin is still asleep and Ali gets out of the limo to go and talk to the street sweeper and the street sweeper says ah it's yourself Mohammed <laughs> and, it, and it, what I love about that is, is can you imagine you know can you imagine Ali or you can imagine the street sweeper you know going around for the rest of this and I met Muhammad Ali this morning and you know you wonder would anybody actually believe him you know yeah. that this this was something that really happened and, and again, you know, in, in kind of a similar vein then, when he gets to the Bahamas, um, he goes out running one morning and some of the English journalists uh, or some of the British journalists go with him. They decide to go along with him on his early morning run because Ali was famous for his fitness and his preparation. Yeah. And they possibly sensed that his fitness and preparation were no longer what they should be. So this, in the, in the Bahamas in 81 there, they go out with him in an early morning run uh, that's more of a walk, really. And then he stop. He, he takes him down into downtown Nassau, and a guy he stops a local. A local spots him, and he stops to talk to the local. And you know, this is the stuff that he loved to do. But the local says to him, "Why are you here? Are you still fighting?" And this was like a few days before Ali's big event in Nassau, and this guy didn't even know that the fight was on. You know that. You know, I mean, it's not that big a place, Nassau and the Bahamas. So, you know, that, that kind of those his interactions with ordinary people, I think, are the most, you know, the most fascinating aspect of, of, of Ali. You know, that, that he would be, you know, he, he loved to meet ordinary people. He loved to get out and mix with the in a way that, you know, if you look at any sport today, all of the major stars are insulated the general public they are cosseted they're cloistered they're kept away as much as possible from ordinary people yet ali loved that that was the aspect of it that kind of drove him the most if you like or that he, he thrived on you know and and anytime you research an ali fight there's always an always a time in his preparation for the fight that he declares himself off limits 
you know, he's gone off now to prepare for the fight. Like, to give you an idea, in the Bahamas, a journalist called Pat O'Brien, who's a very well-known TV journalist in America um, now, but, you know, was a young sports TV, you know, covered sports on TV back then. And Pat O'Brien is in Nassau. He's met Ali a few times through Jesse Jackson. And he walks up the beach to Ali's villa on the morning that Ali is fighting Trevor Burbeck. And Ali comes out, he knocks at the villa door. Ali comes out and Ali invites him in for breakfast and starts doing magic tricks for him. And then, <laughs> and then O'Brien, you know, realizes this is the day of the fight. I shouldn't be here. And says, look, Muhammad, you've been very kind, but I'm sure you have stuff to do. He goes, no, no, stay here. It's fine. And he's, he's sitting there shooting the breeze with a guy doing magic tricks with a journalist, you know, hours before he is due into the ring to fight Trevor Burbeck. I mean, this, this, man is, this man is so different from every athlete in history, every major athlete, certainly that I've ever read about, you know, that, that this, this guy, there's something just so different about him, his approach, his openness, his, his humanity, I suppose, would be the really, you know, cliche term, but his basic humanity was very, very different um, from, from almost every athlete I've ever read about. Uh, the, Different is probably the best word to use it because when you see kind of any sport, boxing doesn't matter what sport it was. When you, when you see what it was before Ali was there, and when Ali came to the world, then and how he approached every fight, different is a great word because he announced himself on the scene with this kind of confidence and swagger and and this almost brash cockiness that nobody had ever seen before. Like they'd heard people call themselves the best, but nobody done it like Muhammad Ali. And I suppose with the Sonny Liston fight, you know, you big ugly bear and all this kind of thing. Nobody had seen that before. Like, how much do you think that trash talk, for want of a better phrase, played a part in building Ali as legend? I think it, it and trash talk is exactly the word, I think, or the, exactly the, the phrase to use to describe it. His trash talking, which, which was actually borrowed from a wrestler called, he saw a wrestler called Gorgeous George do this shtick, you know, I am the greatest and I will put you in your place kind of thing. And he borrowed that. And I mean, he borrowed it, but then he, he improved it to the nth degree. But he, I think the trash talking had an incredible impact because if you look at Ali and if you compare him to say to Michael Jordan, who was the, you know, the greatest basketballer of all time and, you know, who even in Ireland that we knew of Michael Jordan, even if we didn't watch basketball, we knew of Jordan. Michael Jordan's legend was was propagated by Nike and, you know, promoted at every turn and millions, tens of millions were spent promoting legend of, of Michael Jordan. Whereas Ali, it was very organic. It was Ali pushing Ali. And it was Ali pushed his legend by, by this trash talking, by saying things that nobody had ever heard a guy say on this scale and with that, you know, so often and, and so brashly again and again and again. So there was no sports co- sportswear company, you know, pushing the legend or promoting him at every turn. There was just his mouth. And his mouth was possibly the greatest sales tool in sports history because yeah. his mouth ensured that everybody heard of him. And and not everybody liked it, too. That was, I suppose, something to consider, that everybody, you know, half of the people loved him and half of the people hated him. Half of the people were tuning in, waiting to see him to see him lose. And to give you an idea of, of the cockiness, you know, the I, I was revisiting his relationship with Angelo Dundee because, you know, him and Angelo Dundee, got together for Ali's professional, second professional fight. 
it was the first time they worked together. So I was kind of drawing a line between a second professional fight and the final night that they that he fought Burbick. And the first the, the first time they worked together, Ali's second outing as a, as a pro, Ali was in trouble in that fight. He wasn't doing great, but he pulled it out and and um and he defeated um it was, it was the fight took place in Miami. I'm trying to think of the guy's name. Yeah, the guy's name was Herb Seiler. He was fighting Herb Seiler, and he was in trouble early on. But in in the fourth round, he knocked out Herb Seiler, and uh, for his second professional victory. And at the end of it, he's shouting in the ring, "I am the greatest! I'm going to be the world champion!" And everybody is everybody in the auditorium is like, "Who is this ridiculous kid of 18 <laughs> shouting that he's going to be the champion of the world? And he is the greatest. He's just beaten a journeyman pro." But you know that that will tell you like that that thing started early. And it lasted a long time. Was gonna, and then he'd he done it again after he beat Sonny Liston. And he was pretty much jumping over the ropes to shout at the reporters again then. So if they didn't believe him then, they'd have to believe him after the Liston fight. Like. Exactly. And and the reporters, I mean, look, the reporters loved it. And this is what makes Ali such a compelling character is, you know, you asked me about research earlier. When you go back to read what was written about Ali... In, in his in, in his prime or during his career by by sports writers like McIlvenny, um, you know you you will come across some of the best sports writing uh, of the 20th century because Ali was such a great subject and these were such great writers so it was the perfect storm really but when, you know th- he gave them gold though you know you look at the stuff a run in the mill press conference with Ali he's given them stuff that no no soccer player no GA player you know no rugby player would ever give a reporter it's just you know copy of a standard or quotes of a standard that are just completely out of this world you know and just to give you an idea of that at the end of the fight in in the Bahamas, when he's in the locker room and he's he's distraught and he knows it's over and he's very very realistic about what's happening. Think about this now. He just fought for the last time, and this is moments afterwards, and the journalists are in there, and they go they go from discussing, you know, why didn't you win, you know, how badly did you feel in the ring, etc., to discussing whether Ali. <laughs> could become a Middle East peace envoy and whether Libya's Muammar Gaddafi, who was a friend of Ali's, was really trying to assassinate Ronald Reagan or not. So, I was just going to ask you that as well, Dave. I was going to say to you, like, did he ever consider uh, a career in politics? Because he seemed, not only was he influential in in, in his sport, but he was quite influential to people as well with his quotes. His quotes will be forever used so did he ever contemplate a career in politics? I, I don't think he did. I mean, he, he from 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 early in the 1970s, he 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 was setting himself up to be this spokesman for Islam, a man who was going to travel the world on behalf of Islam, which which more or less is what he did after after his career ended. But no, I don't think he, he had any overt political ambitions. Uh, you have to remember, too, that Ali was not the beloved i mean since his his death uh, a few weeks back people you know the, the the outpouring of love and affection for him has been fantastic to witness but also we must remember that for a long time in the in the late 60s and early 70s he was hated by as many people as he was loved so he would have had problems getting elected in 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 many parts of america for that reason i mean only in the last possibly since atlanta 20 years ago on the olympic flame when he lit the olympic flame he has become more loved 
that than he ever was before. He is he has turned into the grand or he turned into the grand old man of American sport or world sport, this beloved figure. But some of the outspoken stuff that he came out with in the sixties and seventies, you know, alienated him from a lot of people. So I don't think politics was was ever, you know, elected office was ever a real possibility. But, you know, it, it was extraordinary that you know, he he gives an average press conference with Ali. He would be discussing um, his an invitation to Russia that he re, or to the Soviet Union that he received from Leonid Brezhnev, uh, a trip to China uh, to meet with the Communist Party leaders in That's Beijing. That's what I'm saying. Like, how did Just, he become friends with Gaddafi? <laughs> well, Gaddafi, uh, he. This is the thing about Ali too that we have to, you know, this is this is what makes him so fascinating. Is he was no saint. And he was friends with a lot of questionable people. You know, he, he there was a lot of a, a lot of different characters on the world stage that, you know, he met and, and, and hung out with that we would not, you know, that, that we know now were not good, good characters. You know, Gaddafi. I'm not sure about the Gaddafi relationship, how it actually came about. But I know that he was good enough friends with him in 1981 for, you know, for, for the, the journalists to believe that Ali could be the man, the conduit. To, um, you know, Ali could be the conduit to some sort of peace negotiations because Libya and the US were, were at loggerheads at that time. And even, you know, later, uh, the first Iraq war, the first the first Iraq war, he goes to Saddam Hussein to try to secure the release of American hostages. <laughs> this is stuff, you know, can you imagine Tiger Woods being implied in that kind of role? <laughs> Didn't he go to North Korea before as well? Yes, I think he did. He was, he, you know, no, Ali believed in, in humanity, for good or for bad. He believed that everybody, you know, we shouldn't shut the door on anybody. And just, you know, to show you how politically aware he was, in 1981, um, in the summer of 1981, he comes, he's giving a press conference, and he starts talking about the hunger strikers in the May's prison. You know, just out of nowhere, he, they're like, where do you get your inspiration to come back from or to keep... Fit. And he said, well, I look for inspiration everywhere. Look at those boys over in Ireland starving themselves to death. He said, wow. they're an inspiration. They're an inspiration to anybody. That's incredible that he was so astute to, to have picked up on something. Because uh, obviously, I wasn't going to try because I don't know if it was global news or not. But to, like for Muhammad Ali to make a reference to that in a press conference, it, it is kind of, yeah, there's a little bit of a wow factor in that, all right? There is because, like, he wasn't an educated man. He he did very badly in school. You know, he, he didn't have this the, any academic qualifications, but he was incredibly well informed about the world. And look, look in 1981, there was no cable news channels or 24-hour news channels. You know, flashing stuff into our lives all day long. This was, you know, how he would have heard about that. Maybe he saw a protest, or maybe he read something in the newspaper, or maybe a journalist mentioned it to him. But he he certainly seemed to have a lot of knowledge. About you know about a lot of different things. Like again, in the build-up to the fight with Burb, like um, he's he, he's in Portland, Oregon, and I'm like, what the hell is he doing in Portland, Oregon? Like, what took him out there? And then I delve into it a bit deeper. He's meeting a company out there that is inventing this kind of freeze freeze-dried food, you know, instant food that that um, that can be produced cheaply and that can turn into a meal. And he's Part of, he, he's negotiating with them to bring the food to the third world, uh, to the starving in third world nations. You know, this is stuff. This is just a, never. I never saw that detail before. I just came across it in my research, and I'm like, yeah. this is just you know, 
this is just a typical alley thing. Like, what the hell? Why is he in Portland, Oregon? Oh, he's meeting this food company that are producing this product that he thinks can help the starving, and he he's getting involved in that out of you know, out of what? I mean, he's not there for financial reward. He's there for for you know the benefit of humanity to try and help people. So for all his flaws and all his you know hanging out with dictators that that would you know we would regard as as terrible characters in in the story of of recent world history. He had this extraordinary humanity and this desire to help humanity at every turn. Uh, that seemed evident from very early on. I mean, the, as you said, he, he was a polarizing figure um, and remained so almost, as you said, until the, the images of him clearly suffering from Parkinson's lighting the, the Olympic torch at the Atlantic Games. And that seemed to kind of warm the hearts of people when they seen that image of this one strong, powerful man. And you could see the vulnerability there. But the the whole draft situation and and the famous was no Viet Cong has ever called me nigger that that quote resonates even today that resonates so much so when you talk about a polarizing figure somebody who you know completely opposed the Vietnam War when maybe it wasn't so popular to do so had a little bit of a track record with you know Malcolm X and then as you said later on these sort of when we're looking at it not so popular dictators he. He flirted with controversy, but to him, it, it probably wasn't. He probably seen it as no, it's just a human being, and I'm just loving a human being the way I'd love any other human being, which which is quite amazing, really. It is, and and like as you said, we call it controversial, and it was controversial, undoubtedly. But for him, it was just matters of principle, and and you know, as he liked to point out later, he was right about Vietnam. Yeah, <laughs> he was on the right side of that argument. Um, you know, not that, that that kind of one of many friends at the time, certainly in this country, but he, you know, he was right. Everything he said was, was correct about that. And, you know, so, so and, and think about this, like that he converted to Islam in, in the early 1960s at the height of his career. Now, I've, I've been in America 16 years. I was here in 2001, and, you know, when 9-11 happened. And when 9-11 happened, America had to confront the fact that most people here knew nothing about Islam. They knew nothing about the religion, what it stood for or what it didn't stand for. And Ali, to convert to Islam in the, in the early 60s, you know, when the ignorance about the religion must have been off the charts compared to what it was, having seen what it was in 2001, I can't imagine what it was like in, in the early 1960s. So this was such an extraordinary, bold move for a guy to make, and yet, you know, he made it. I mean, he didn't make it for marketing purposes. He made this because this is, was his sincere belief yeah. that this was the faith that he wanted to embrace. But when you look back, you go, you know, this this was just an extraordinary act of defiance, you know, for for this guy to, to make this decision at that time. And then, you know, to, to show you the journey that Ali makes, which I think is why he is the most compelling sportsman or woman in history is at that time Ali was on the FBI's watch list he, J. Edgar Hoover they opened a file on him and you know he was being wow. monitored by the government at every turn and then in 2001 after 9-11 happened when there was a lot of you know hysteria and justified hysteria about about 9-11 and Islam uh, the government the American government go to Ali in his very diminished condition and say can you do a public service enhancement to explain to the American people that not all Muslims want to kill them. And this, so this is Ali. He goes from being the government's 
um, you know, a government target of government investigation and government monitoring to being the spokesman for the US government as they try to assuage the national fear about what Islam means and, and you know, the difference between Islam and fundamental Islam or fundamentalist Islam. Uh, so this this is the extraordinary journey that he makes. And then, you know, you talk about, about controversy, the death, the death threats that, that Muhammad Ali received on a regular basis throughout the 60s. You know, um, at one stage, uh, he's training in Miami and, and there's a special delivery to his hotel room and it's a severed dog's head in a box. Jesus. You know, this, this kind of extraordinary stuff that happens to him, remarkably disturbing details of these stories, but it was just part of the fabric of this extraordinary life. I'd never heard that story about the, the, the dog's head. That's absolutely insane like that. That's incredible. To, not in a good way, obviously. Um, but And actually, Al Blue Lewis was in the room. Al Blue Lewis was working as a sparring partner for Ali at that time. Uh, this was before the Al Blue Lewis fought him in Crow Park in yeah. 72, but Al Blue Lewis was a sparring partner for Ali at that point. He was in the room when the, when the dog's head was delivered in a, in a hat box, if I remember correctly. So that kind of stuff, you know, this is this is not a sporting life like any other sporting life we've ever encountered or will ever encounter. I mean, there'll never be anybody like this because, you know, even today when, when athletes speak out today, you know, it's so rare and it's almost so, you know, diluted or lukewarm, you know, maybe a couple of, of, of NBA players, um, NFL players. In America, occasionally stick their heads above the parapet. Even James McLean. Look at James McLean. Whenever he that, says man. anything, he gets in trouble. Why shouldn't he have a political viewpoint? Whenever he says anything, he gets hammered. Yeah. Right. He he's deleted his Twitter account after the tweet that he made uh, following the 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 Brexit vote there, uh, not so long ago. And <laughs> as you said, like he, he gets absolutely hammered, or, or his refusal to wear the poppy and. Look, have a political view. Everybody's entitled to one. Like you know, doesn't mean you have to agree with somebody. But that's what makes us all individuals. That you know, and, and as I said, I don't think there ever will be a, another person who carries quite the same. Well, that's a really bad pun, but quite the same punch as Ali when it comes to that kind of thing. <laughs> no, no, there won't. There will. There will never be. And because unfortunately, the world we live in today as well. You know, certainly on the global scale, the, the biggest, the athletes that are famous all over the world, you know, the, the, you know, they're, they're conditioned by Nike and Adidas yeah, yeah. and their agents and, uh, you Would know, there be that much pressure on Ali back in the day with, with sponsorships or anything like that? Well, if there was, it never affected him. There, there wasn't really. I mean, there wasn't the commercial. And again, he wasn't, you know, Ali wasn't the commercial juggernaut then that he became. The extraordinary thing about Ali is, is late in life, he became this this iconic figure that marketeers realized we could make real big money out of Ali. Under Armour bought the rights to Ali, you know, the image of Ali or the name of Ali for like 200 million, wow. you know, a couple of years before Ali's death. Now, he would never have got that money in his prime because he was not loved enough by enough people. You know, he was not, he was considered radioactive by some companies because of his outspoken views, you know, the stuff we've just discussed that they would not, you know, they would not invest in him for that reason that they thought, you know, that he was not kind of marketing, 
you know, marketing material to mainstream America. But then late in life, he became this this figure on T-shirts. You know, the, the this uh, this character that kids kids wear his T-shirts, T-shirts with his image and some of his slogans on it. Who've never who've never seen a fight may not even have ever seen it on YouTube. <laughs> yet they still wear his clothes. You know, you got to understand about Ali. Um, I teach I teach in a in a college here, and um, I was discussing Ali one day in class, and it it came to me. It was a class of eighteen to nineteen year olds, freshmen and uh, freshman students, and uh, we're talking about Ali, or I'm telling them something about Ali, and it, I realized they don't know who I'm talking about, and. I, I say, you know who Ali is, right? And then one of them says, yeah, he's the guy that bit the other guy on the ear. Oh, my God. Jesus. <laughs> so, but look, they're 18. How would they have known? You know, they they weren't even alive when he lit the Olympic flame, never mind when he, you know, yeah, yeah. defeated Liston or fought Frazier. You know, he's a character from history. But the point of that is, is some of them now, you'll see teenagers wearing his T-shirts. The te- teenagers wear T-shirts with Ali on it. He's almost like a pop cultural icon, more than you know the the most fascinating for us. For you know, for my generation, he's the most fascinating character in the history of sport. But for them, he's this pop cultural cool icon that you can wear a T-shirt of and be hip. Absolutely, I was going to say as well. There, I suddenly feel feel old. I don't know what's in my head. I try to very quickly, and I realise that eighteen and nineteen year olds wouldn't being around when Tyson bit Holyfield's ear so like yeah I can see how they might just jump to that conclusion that yeah he's the guy that bit Holyfield's oh my god Jimmy McGee he talked a lot about his legacy and how similar to what you were saying there a moment ago Dave that there'll never be another one um, or there'll never be anybody like Muhammad Ali we're running out of time at yourself so I suppose like what do you think the lasting impression is going to be of this man, I mean, I think one of the things Jimmy McGee said was that if an alien landed from space, Muhammad Ali would probably be the best person to put in front of him because he was that warm and engaged with everybody, no matter what they were. Or if a if a mountain man came down from the hills who had never seen a television in his life, he'd be able to say that's Muhammad Ali. Like he'd still recognize him somehow. What do you think the lasting legacy is going to be for a man as great as Ali? Well, I think it's far beyond sport anyway, for a start. I mean, his sporting career is, is enthralling and fascinating, but he is he's much bigger than that. I I have a kind of a thesis that, that Ali certainly is the story of America in the 20th century. You know, you can tell the story of American history uh, in, in the last 50, 60 years through the prism of Muhammad Ali's career. A little boy growing up in segregated Louisville with a name that he later gives up because he associates it with the slave ancestry, you know, his, his the slave uh, ancestry in his family tree, that this was given to him by a slave owner, um, embraces Islam, the most controversial, you know, religion of the time, uh, becomes involved in the civil rights movement, the, the, the battle for social change, <laughs> objects to the Vietnam War, you know, does everything. You know, you tell every every major event in American history in this time period. Ali, you know, goes to the Supreme Court uh, to fight for his own justice, and then and then becomes the first 
superstar of, of what you might call the, the television age, you know, the first global superstar of the television age, the first man whose whose fights became appointment television across the globe, like whether you were in Ireland, whether you were in Africa, whether you were in Eastern Europe, this was the man you, you the world stopped turning when Ali got in the ring. I mean, he was the first man to do that on a regular basis, as well as all of the political, social justice stuff that, I, that I've touched upon. So I, I, I think he's, you know, he's this character that, that we can tell the story. If you want to tell anybody the story of America from, you know, in the second half of the 20th century, you, you really can just tell them the story of Muhammad Ali. And, and they'll say, well, one man was involved in all that. Or one man became embroiled in all of that. And even, you know, even if we look at the Irish chapter in his life, that brief kind of interlude in Ireland, you know, what, what were the what were the. I do. I make this joke like when, when there were three colors of people in Ireland in 1972: white, whiter, and whitest. And this, you know, this, this this black athlete came to Dublin, and some of the American journalists who were with Ali in 1972 said they'd only ever seen Ali loved like he was in Dublin in two other places: Atlanta and Harlem. And Atlanta and Harlem are predominantly African American. Uh, places in America, so that that the whitest country in Europe, or one of the whitest countries in Europe, you know, was in love with this guy and and worshipped him. You know, even that that's something else for us to consider. What the you know what what was so remarkable, what was so magnetic about this man that that he could that he could walk into a country with no black people and become the most popular man in that country for that week. I think that is kind of fitting way to, to put it and. Uh an accurate way to put it as well he was a man who who breached and made history um, and that, that's definitely how he'll be remembered um, the book again is drama in the bahamas muhammad ali's last fight and it's out august 2nd but dave if people want to hear more from you in the meantime the, your twitter handle at davy hannigan is it at, yes at davy hannigan and um i'm my column in the irish times is every thursday Every Thursday, the Irish Times, and some of the columns that you wrote actually after Ali's death, the immediacy after Ali's death for the Times were absolutely brilliant. By the way, I really enjoyed reading them. Thank um, you very much. But Davey, look, I can't wait to read the book again. Thank you so much for your time, and uh, I really hope the book does as as well as I hope it does because it, it, it's, it sounds like a fascinating story. And from talking to you, I know it's going to be an interesting read. So once again, Davey, thanks for me for your time. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks, Dave. Take care. Thanks. I love that. Yeah, that was really good. I love that, man. Dave joined us there via Skype. Um, he's based in New York, as you heard from say. He's a professor, teacher, writer, all-round good guy. I was um, enjoying the interview so much that I was forgetting to come up with questions. So. Yeah, it was, it was. you were actually just kind of sitting back, and at times you were just shaking your head, kind of going, wow. Like, yeah. It was just it was brilliant. I love the, the story with the, the, the council worker. Yeah, the street sweeper. Yourself, Mohammed. <laughs> Classic cracker, man! Absolute cracker. Um, that was really, I really, really enjoyed that. Thanks again to Dave definitely Hannigan. getting that book. Yeah, the book "Drama in the Bahamas: Muhammad Ali is Last for You" out August second in all good bookshops and some rubbish ones too. Boom! Keep <laughs> <laughs> hanging to see what you yeah, do. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely gonna pick up a copy of that book. If you're heading away in August, keep an eye out for it. Yeah. Um, and maybe pick that up. And sure, look, I'll tell you what. He sounds so passionate about the subject, doesn't he? Yeah, he just sounds like he, he lives for it, you know what I mean? He just sounds like, well, maybe not lives for it, but as he said himself, I think he, he wrote in one of his articles before that he spent something like 13 months. 13 months. Writing and researching. researching Muhammad Ali. And not one bit of it felt like work. Yeah. 
which just that speaks volumes about Ali yeah. and about how Dave feels about his work. Like that's Big incredible. Time, like, yeah. Brilliant. So look, if they're heading away in August, make sure to pick up a copy of that book. And uh, also, don't forget Alan Gernon's book, Retired, which has just gone out for a second edition print. Wow. That's, that's how popular it is, um, which is brilliant. So two grab, great sports books. Two great sports books. Um, so congratulations to Alan. Um, he also includes us in the press notes, just now. Come on, what's the story? What? <laughs> what's that? In the press notes, I want the press clippings, like. Yeah. You know, when you see, like, on the back of a book, like, uh, you know, like... Thanks uh, too. No, like uh, like fantastic five stars, The Guardian. Yeah, great book, really funny, laugh out loud stuff. Yeah, The Mirror, all that stuff. Yeah, he has like one of our quotes and what's the story podcast? Good way. Yeah, where can I see that? I don't know. You just uh, sent me an email about it. Deadly. So yeah, Alan Gernon retired. Dave Hannigan, drama in the Bahamas. Muhammad Ali's last fight. There are the two books you need to read this summer. Isn't it mad um, that Ali's last fight? The bell was a cowbell. Yeah, that's a bit weird, all right. Isn't that weird? Yeah. It is. It's Especially because a cowbell just sounds, you know. No, but it, it yeah. It, and also, it, it's kind of that whole thing. It speaks of, volumes for how people weren't into it, into watching him fight. Like. It does. And it, it kind of, it's that old thing, isn't it, of like somebody just, and I don't mean outstanding or welcome in the sense that like nobody wanted it. I'm sure there are mm. people out there. Or people who were at that fight who maybe like didn't want it because of but health knew, issues, but knew they were getting yeah. to see a legend. Like, and um, to see him go from you know, like headline in Las Vegas, the rumble in the jungle, all them kind of fights that grabbed so much attention around the world yeah. that captured the imagination of people to a fight that barely happened and they had to rob a bell off a cow on the field. Yeah. Madness. Dave said as well that he stopped off in Kiltern. When he was over here, yeah, he was staying in Kiltern. It's only yeah. up the road. Only up the road. Jesus. Only up the road. Imagine meeting him. Deadly, wouldn't I? Yeah, going at one of his jogs to meet the people or something. I'd say he definitely, after the fight, stopped off in the 24-hour McDonald's and got coins. <laughs> That's what we all do, wasn't it? Yeah. Don't say that next week when we have Lindsay Doyle on. No. <laughs> uh, look, yeah, look, we're, we're just out of time for uh, this chapter. Um, there was no housekeeping this week because we wanted to just focus on Ali um, but next week is more or less a full episode of housekeeping you'll be happy to know because we welcome back to the ranks the one and the only Lindsay Danger Doyle Woo. she's not actually dead so all the times you said Lord rest her that <laughs> was just a vicious rumor that got out of hand <laughs> I'd be good to have Lynn back and invite her into our new house here in Fitzpatrick's Castle Hotel the greatest spot in the borough Fitzpatrick's.com Ugh. Fitzpatrickscastle.com. No, Fitzpatrickcastle.com. No mess. No mess. I'm slightly delicate as we're recording this. Might be a bit obvious, is it? <laughs> no. <laughs> that's what Vegas does to you, Graham. That's what Vegas yeah. does to you. Right, so that's it. Dave Hannigan once again. Thank you so much. Thanks again for listening, lads. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher. If you have an Android, anywhere and everywhere there's a podcast, just search WTS Pod. We will be there. Facebook.com forward slash WTS Pod Ireland. Twitter at WTS Pod. I'm at Dan John Morty. He's at American Mania. And that's the lot. Good luck. I'm going to enjoy Vegas. Good night and God bless. <laughs>